When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. to the Socially Distant Sports Spa. Episode 5 is here and ready for your ears. We're turning the lockdown into something of a lock-in. Uh, you can get involved with the pod at Distant Pod is where you can find us on Instagram, on Facebook and on Twitter. Each time we meet up in the bar, we bring two YouTube clips each and a book with us and one of us chooses a sports documentary for us to watch. Uh, if you want to watch the clips a little bit later on. We'll put them all up on our YouTube channel, Socially Distant Sports Bar on YouTube. You can find the clips there, you can listen to our episodes, and you can watch the playlists there as well. Uh, Mike, how are you, sir? Are you all good? Good, thank you, Steph. Very well, very well. Excellent. Ellis, all good in the lockdown with you? Yeah, I just really miss playing football. I realised today, if I could do anything once this lockdown is lifted, it would be have a yes. good game of football with my mates. I don't know, I just really want to... That'd be five-a-side max. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a five-a-side training session, and I, I wouldn't know one of them. One of them. Uh, playing two and in with one person. <laughs> what have you missed most, Mike? Um, well, do you know what I miss? We're calling this on a Saturday, uh, spoiler alert, because Al's doing some stuff tomorrow, very worthy stuff tomorrow. Um, I've missed... Just continuing a drinking session today. I was having a couple of drinks in the sunshine, really enjoying it. I had two pints in the afternoon. I thought oh, it was a perfect day for a drink. 
uh, but professional. I stopped drinking uh, seven hours ago to do this. So, you know. Well, you, you watched Wales Scotland from 1988. Yes. Because BBC Wales are replaying classic Welsh fixtures. So they showed Wales Italy in the football from 2002. I'm not saying this was um, my idea, but I did broach the subject with Roger Talvin Davis a while back when they were showing the old Wales football games. I said rugby. OK, so you know. we've got you to thank for it. Yeah. Now, we prob- I probably should have watched this so we could have a proper discussion, but... Mm. Had the game changed as drastically as I imagine? Oh, yeah, I was watching with, with my boy there, and I, he couldn't believe... He kept asking me, What's, what are they doing, Dad? He, he'd never seen things like scrum half dummy in the ball, um, no-one lifting it in a line-out, um, yeah. place kicks for kickoffs, uh, people standing around at half-time having an orange, not going into a changing room, <laughs> no, yeah. no score on the pitch, no, no, no clock on the screen. I mean, yeah. it, it was... Everything, I, but I thought the skill level. I watched that game. What a brahma of a game that is! The flipping both sides playing some great rugby, some really really good rugby, but um, com- not as different as that football doc we talked about last week. That was night and day. Mm. You know, it was recognisably um, rugby. And it was, was it two years later than that football doc? Yeah, he's, this was eighty eight. So this was before years after, wasn't it? Yeah, eighty four. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, but still a different world. I mean, and at the, the anthems at the beginning was Scotland playing Wales. And two things struck me. One was that there were just three random blokes with a scarf and a, and a flag just stood behind the teams, right? Which my son assumed were mascots, but they were just like three random pissheads. <laughs> just do. Just standing in the middle of the pitch, right? Yeah, yeah. And then they played God Save the Queen for Scotland. So nobody sang. Did they really? Did they? Yeah. So they used to do that for Wales. Wow. They used to play God Save the Queen for Wales until the 70s. So none they? of the Scottish boys sang, obviously, and everyone just booing. Yeah. And then <laughs> and then they played the Welsh anthem, which was, it was fairly appalling compared to modern standards. Yeah. You know? And then there were pitch invasions during the game. I, I, I'd, I'd forgotten that. Like, five minutes before the end, there's suddenly about a thousand people on the pitch. And John, <laughs> John and Davies trying to shoot people up because they haven't finished. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ben said, "What are they doing, Dad?" I said, well, "It's just a pitch invasion, mate. That, that used to happen." Yeah. yeah. But my dad used to send me down. We used to sit up in one of the stands, sort of higher yeah. up, and he used to send me down. This was perfectly acceptable. Yeah. I would be younger than your boy Ben, so I would be about the age of my eldest, sort of nine. Yeah. And my dad would go, "Right, meet you down by the goalpost down there." Super. After the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Five minutes before the end, I'd go down with all these, like you say massive piss heads and just pile onto the pitch I did it yeah. I remember keeping a, I, it was, I think it was the game before like, it might have been the Thorburn game like in 86 I remember running on the field and, and just keeping a piece of turf put a piece of turf in my pocket and I had an old like uh, the sort of tray you put minced beef in from the butchers like a polystyrene tray and I went home and put that bit of turf in a polystyrene tray and watered it for about two weeks <laughs> <laughs> thinking I could keep it going it obviously died right it obviously died but I mean yeah so at the end of the game there, were, there must have been five, ten thousand 10,000 people on the pitch around the tunnel well every time I went to watch the Scarlets in that period I would be on the pitch at the end of the game when Lethley beat Australia 13-9 in 1993 I ended up on the pitch also in, in football it was very very common until more recently than you'd think so and also in big fixtures so for the home and away documentary that we chose last week, that was the Milk Cup final in '84. But there's no, there's no the goal. The it ends nil nil. I watched the '86 FA Cup final two years later, and when Everton score, yeah, there's there's, there's hundreds of people on the pitch. And when Graham Sharp scores that great goal in the yes. Merseyside derby, they they yes. they're pouring on from the Everton end. It's just a thing that used to happen. Again, leading on from the last couple of podcasts. 
I, I was watching that thinking, the referee, he's the same age as David Beckham, right? He looked like he'd walked <laughs> off Dad's army, right? I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and well, then Clive he, Dunn is like 47 in the first series of yeah, Dad's army. he's the same age as me, which is very depressive. But then, and then the other fellow there, uh, uh, Phil May, who played second row for Wales, just a shambolic looking fellow. I mean, I'm sure, you know, I'm, I'm not casting versions on his character or anything, but I thought, how oh, Christ, how old is he? Because he's got this bald head and he's got this moustache and this pointy nose and this sort of like, he's got skinny arms but a bit of sort of fairly big arse, but he doesn't look particularly in shape at all. Right? No, no, no. And he's got like uh, man boobs. And, and, yeah, I mean, well done for pointing that out but I mean I, I thought how old is he because he looks old right yeah 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 yeah. and I I googled it and he was 31 and I said that's the same age as Adele <laughs> I, I had his poster on my wall filled me believe it or not <laughs> and the thing with Phil me is like talking about his physique he was representing Wales you know, his country at, it, at its level. national sport at the highest level. He played in the 87 yes. World Cup. Amateur. He had the job as a stripper to keep him going in the week, obviously. <laughs> he also... <laughs> he had that... Um, what people don't have anymore is um, the haircut that he had, the sort of the Cadvile yes. haircut. Yeah. If, yes. if you're unfamiliar with Cadvile, he was a 12th century medieval monk detective. I love these sports podcasts, honestly. <laughs> It was on ITV. Imagine pitching that, that show. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're in the lift pitching Cadvar. Yeah. yeah, he's a monk. He's detective. a medieval monk detective. Yeah, yeah. well, Welsh guy at a monastery in Shrewsbury. Yeah. What, what sort of crimes? General, um, ecclesiastical, agricultural, <laughs> stealing you know. bits of meat, probably. I don't know whatever. All the stuff, blasphemy, everything. <laughs> What's he going to look like? Do you remember Phil May? You play for <laughs> <laughs> Get him in. Get Phil May in. Lose the moustache, Phil. <laughs> Phil May in a cassock. Who do you believe Richie tonsure. Collins? A as tonsure well, is yeah. called that. A tonsure. Who came up with a tonsure? Because I mean, because Rich. Richie Collins was twenty, I think twenty-six at the time. Like I, I played rugby with people like Nathan Budget, who obviously played for Wales. Uh, yes. Budget was losing his for in university. You know, just that's the way it was. So he just shaved it off, but no one thinks of that. Yes, you know? he's just a. When did that become a thing then? When did that become an okay thing to do, and you weren't necessarily far right I th- if you I shaved your head? I'm going to say by the time I left uni, so late nineties, that was a. Yeah, right. that's what I'm going to say as well. I remember, you know? I remember going out in town in '97, '98, and men in their twenties had shaved heads, and they I didn't necessarily think that they were in combat eighteen or anything. Yeah, because I haven't seen anyone with the CAD file film. Not even old people do. have it now. No, but you know, Bobby Charlton doesn't have a comb over anymore. Yeah. The guy who the guy who basically <laughs> did more Rhapsody than anyone Nesbitt. to popularise it. Doesn't have one, does he? Greg Fisher, <laughs> the blog from the Hamlet commercial, as his name. <laughs> but when, when we were a kid, when we were a kid, oh. if you saw someone who was bald and you called him like Kojak or Duncan Goodhue. It's because yeah. those people were exceptional. They were, you know, they yeah, were, yeah, yeah. You, know. you don't look at Alan, Alan Shearer and go, Kojak. <laughs> I will from now on. <laughs> if Alan Shearer's listening, he's a fantastic footballer and a good looking man. If we're talking about how much rugby has shifted on, let's start with Ellis because your clip, I think your first round clip ties in best. What I find 
amazing about this clip, and it's Jonah Lomu in the 1995 Rugby World Cup steamrollering my cat. Amazing. This is the big man, Lomu. He's still on his feet. Lomu could score. That's a great try for New Zealand. And what I find amazing about this clip, and I still... It still affects me in the way it did then, is that he was so different and he revolutionised his sport to such an extent. Even though whatever everything he was doing and everything New Zealand were doing, was with it, it was all within the laws of the game, it was like they were cheating. Because yeah. he was six foot five, he could run the 100 metres in 10.8 seconds. Now... You know, in those days, in 1995, your wingers were small and and quick and light on their feet. That was the rule. And in in Wales, certainly in 1995, if you had a six foot five inch rugby player, he would have been in the pack. But New Zealand had him on the wing, hmm. and he it was insane. And he he became bigger than rugby in a way that I think Tiger Woods was bigger than golf, and yeah. Ali was bigger than boxing. Definitely. You know, he was such a draw. And when I say that it was like he was cheating, I was trying to think of other examples of 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 sports people who've done this to their chosen sport and profession. Now, someone like Emil Zatopek, I think, is probably the best example in running. Just rewrote yeah. the rule book. I think it's obviously it's much harder in a team game. I think Dennis Lilly is probably quite a good example in cricket because his fast bowling was so aggressive and so different. It must have been absolutely terrifying facing one of his deliveries in the 70s. But with Lomu... You, you had it, like things like... I mean, there, there were technique things. Like, like Dick Fosbury in the, in the high jump yeah, yeah. broke the world record by about a foot. Right? And then, yeah. <laughs> Imagine being there the first day he did that. Yeah. What's he yeah, doing? yeah, yeah. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> and and I th- I think around that time, so say the '98 World Cup was the first time I think I'd probably had a good look at Zidane, and it was the first time I'd had a, pro- had a properly good look at uh, Ronaldo, the first Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo. And they were both fantastic footballers, but what they were doing was recognisably football. It was football, you, yeah. just done much better than I'd seen it done by anyone else. It was like Lomu had been zapped onto the pitch from another planet, and he was so much bigger than his opposing number. It kind of it reminded me of school level rugby. Now, my dad used to get very, very yeah. frustrated when I was a kid because I think, and I know that you know you two are rugby obsessives, but I think one of the weaknesses of rugby is that. There's such disparity amongst boys, say, of 14. You've got boys of 14 who are 6 foot 1 and boys of 14 who are 5 foot 1. Mm. Now, if you're the 5 foot 1 kid, rugby is a shit game to play. Yeah. <laughs> and I used to... My, my dad just wanted me to... My dad was desperate for me to play the team. And there was a... I won't name him in case he listens to this podcast, but there was a... There was and a he's massive. Boy, and, yeah, and he's huge. But there was a boy in our year... Was your hand bone, as you say? Uh, yeah, Hamburg. The pharmacist. His dad was a bouncer as well. This guy now, at a parents' <laughs> evening. My dad went up to him, assuming he was a teacher. Now this guy's dad, he was about five. So first game when I was playing against him, the boys in my street and the boys in my primary school, we were all about the same size. So I hadn't really come across this disparity in size before. And I remember saying to dad, I said, I'm not enjoying rugby actually because every time X runs at me, it's just impossible to tackle him. My dad would get very frustrated. What are you talking about? 
Shaman, I'm What are you talking about? You name me a human being who can run without legs. You just uncle tap him. Uncle tap him. So then I would try that and I would yeah. get steamrolled. Broke your wrist. And the thing, yeah, the thing <laughs> I found amazing with Lomu, it was like watching an 18-year-old play 11-year-olds. And he was on the wing. Yeah. He wasn't even in, he wasn't even a flanker or a number eight. Well, you watch Lomu run with the ball. He scored some fantastic tries for New Zealand. And like Al said, completely revolutionised rugby. You watch his super rugby games as well. I mean, it is just staggering. But he would run with the ball often in one hand. Yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. hold it almost like a cricket ball. You know, these big <laughs> hands. And he would swat. It was like, like swatting flies. He had that enormous handoff. Yeah, great pace. He had legs like him. He had that sort of Polynesian build where he had, you know, big strong yeah. arms, big strong thighs. You know, I think John the Davis is my, is my favourite uh, player that I've seen play, but certainly the player that I found most exciting and that really gave rugby as a sport a real kick of the ass was John Aloma. When you were playing, you know, really good rugby in the nineties, I've seen the pictures on Facebook. You were in good. You were in very good shape. You're very, you're very good. And you were spending a lot of time in the gym. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm not going to blow smoke up your ass. You were physically quite an impressive specimen. Yes. We were talking about this once when you and I were on the way to a gig. And I said, so back in those days, how much fruit and veg were you eating? And you said, oh, none, zero. No, <laughs> it just makes me laugh. Nothing at all. <laughs> I mean, I, I, so where were you getting your vitamins from? Supplements? Yeah, tablets. <laughs> I had a girlfriend came around at the time when I was living in uh, Bradford and Avon. I remember we just started seeing each other. And I was... I said I cook a dinner on a Friday, and I said, "Do you want like do you want beef or do you want chicken?" She said, "Oh, I love it. Oh, chicken, lovely." But it was just chicken. <laughs> <laughs> she said, well, "Anything else?" I said, "No, no, just I don't. I'm I'm not eating carbs." So it was. I just gave her a bowl of bowl of grilled chicken. <laughs> but were you vitamin deficient then, or were you just having all? No, there's plenty. Of, there's plenty of vitamins and vitamin tablets, mate. Loads. That's what I mean, that's what they're for. For <laughs> fibre. In fact. Well, fibre, yeah. Rice cakes now and again. <laughs> you, can, you, you, can, you can you can buy fibre. You you can get little sachets, put in your protein powder. Yeah, yeah. I don't there's know nothing. There's thinking. nothing you can eat or buy in a, in a, in a greengrocer's that you can't get out of a bottle perfectly easily. <laughs> <laughs> Without none of that bullshit. No washing up to do. It's basically like space 1999, man. <laughs> 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 but oh. when all the lockdown started and people started panic buying, old Bubbins is laughing his tits off, isn't he? <laughs> Freezer full of chicken bits and 14 <laughs> bottles of vitamins. Everyone's happy. Shout out to the people at Centrum. We <laughs> <laughs> oh. got the Holland about it massive. I remember a quote from one of the bodybuilders back in the 80s. I can't remember which one it was now, but I was big into it at the time. We said, when you see the bloke winning the Mr. Olympia and looks this picture of health and fitness and strength, that bloke who's winning is probably the one that's closest to death because his body is completely stripped of all fluid. He's got, you know, he's been on diuretics. He's, he, you know, he's completely shredded. His heart rate is nuts. His blood pressure's through the roof, you know. But, you know. You put, oh, and Bleak really put... No, I was just saying, but he, he won the Olympia, didn't he? So Yeah, yeah. Swings and roundabouts. Got to do something. <laughs> when we get the t-shirts made up for the show eventually 
That's on the yeah. back for yeah. sure. Well, a t- well, that's what we'll have to call this. You can bring your dinner we'll on the front call- and you've got to die we'll of something on the back. Show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> I think the, the only negative I ever saw with the rise of Lomu was every other country then almost abandoned small players yeah. in favour of inferior big players. Yeah, because what he was, was 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 big and really good. Yes, but definitely, and that's what people miss. Selectors, yeah, they all went down the, well, we, let's find some really big blokes. Well, yes. Yeah, the, the really good bit is, is crucial there as well. I remember my uncle saying, if, if, if the wingers are going to be six or five, then where does that leave normal humans? Because how big are your number eights going to be? If you then humans? even in the in the in the in the midst of that that sort of race for size, World Player of the Year one year was Shane Williams. You know. So I used to do a radio show on a Saturday morning, and it was a sports show. And when we heard that he was signing for the Blues, uh, we got his number, phoned him up, and he came on one Saturday morning while he was still in New Zealand. And very nice man, and did, did that thing at the end of the interview where I said, uh, "Oh, look, if you're ever around, you're always welcome in the studio." Because that's kind of the polite thing to say. You don't think anything of it. And then three weeks later, just as we were about to go on air, there was a phone call up from reception, and uh, uh, Mr. Lomu was in reception <laughs> for you. What? You up? Mr. Lomu was in reception for you. So, okay, Kenneth is, and Jonah is there. He's driven himself from wherever he's renting a place in Cardiff. <laughs> I've just popped in to say hi. Yeah, nice man. So you got any, got any time for me on the show today? Yes. Do you know what? We'll squeeze you in. Yeah, yeah. We'll squeeze you on the show this yeah, week, Jonah. I think so. What a dude. Oh, fair play to him. That's fantastic. Right, Mike, your first clip for this week is what? Well, as we all know on the show, I like American things. We talked to a fellow called John Fassender last week who did all the commentary for uh, a lot of the NFL films in the 70s and the late 60s, early 80s. Um, this is a bit of culture for us, lads. We're a sports podcast. We talk about Lionel Blair and Bobby Denver with equal aplomb. <laughs> this is... Just all week watching that. This is John Fassender uh, reciting <laughs> Rudyard Kipling's If... If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being hated so there we go. I love I love it when you can when there's yin and yang. So we got the the lovely, lovely voice, the, the mellow, rich tones of John Fassender there in his beautiful uh, speaking voice, which is contrasting very nicely with some really savage hits in football and some fumbles and some bits and bobs. I just that's a really nice thing. They used to do these sort of specials all the time. NFL films. They would they would do. Um, they do poems or, or they do little blooper reels or they would do these little fun things. Um, I love that one. That's one of my wife's favourite poems, Kelly, if you're listening. Uh, she hasn't listened yet, mind. We're, we're five in. The other day I said to her, I said, Jonathan Davis, the greatest rugby player of all time, likes mm. our podcast. I know. And she said, I, know. I, know. I don't know who that is. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I know. Well, I do not care. Do? So uh, that's her favourite poem. So that's really a tip of the hat to the wife there. She brings me beers when we do the records. 
And so, yeah, that's, that's my favourite sports commentator doing my wife's favourite poem. It shows how, um, I think, culture's been dumbed down. Oh, because that, it's inconceivable now that you would do that on, a, on any sport show. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine and, you know, it? I, I, I don't know which sport has the highest brow of or of um, cricket? You know, punter cricket? Would Maybe. you have? Yeah, yeah. Of the mainstream sport, I'm, I'm sure oh. like real tennis gets a higher bro. Yeah, but I, but in, you know, <laughs> during the Ashes, would you have a two and a half minute f- uh, clip of of no? You know, someone of Shane Warne reading if. Well, do you remember yeah, when he, uh, what's his name, uh, yeah. Jackie <laughs> Ponting, getting him to do it? I just can't imagine it. And then you listen to the radio. I still love the radio commentary. Listen to Test Match Special. They'd have like yeah, Test Match Special. Brian actually. Johnson if, would spend a good ten minutes describing like an apple tart. Some of the sentiments. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if they had t- yeah. But that um, that John Fassender, the, the one phrase that stuck in my mind all week from the from the the Dick Butkus one last week, and I've got to mention a thing in a second about that. Um, was what he said. Butkus was Moby Dick in a goldfish bowl. I thought, come on, you're not getting that. You know what I mean? You you got to know who Moby Dick is for a kickoff. Someone bought me the the DVD of Civilization, the Kenneth Clark um, documentary from the late sixties. Yes. He spends probably two minutes talking about a pot, and that that is all it is. And it's a it's, it's a two thousand year old pot. Now I. I love a history documentary. They were showing this on Saturday night. It was like some prime time <laughs> where you'd have X Factor. Whatever the documentary is on BBC Four, I will watch it just to, to prove that they can make everything interesting. I watched a whole documentary about a year and a half ago on the Apple, right? Not the computer, yeah, yeah. Not the computer firm, Apples You Eat. I said to Kelly, so what are you watching this for? I said, this is one of the best things I've ever seen. So what's it about? I said, Apples. So what do you mean? I said, I don't, I don't, when do you sound like an Apple? I don't like Apples. This is the point. I'm watching the next stuff. When did you start liking apples? When did you start liking apples? It's such a great start to any conversation. Can I just say, before we move on from... um, I want to say a quick thank you. I mentioned Dick Buckus last week, being my favourite football player, and being torn that I was a Packers fan, but a a huge Dick Buckus fan. A lovely chap called Geraint Reese got in touch with me via via Twitter and showed me this signed Dick Buckus football in the case. I said, oh, well, that's with a very impressive uh, sports biography shelf as well. I said, mate, is that really? He said, yeah, yeah, my, my wife won it in a poker game in Las Vegas 15 years ago. I said, what a story, and what, you know, that's a brilliant thing to have. He said, do you know what? It needs a good home. I'll send it to you. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. And then I, I showed you the photographs. So then, in the middle of the week, this beautiful, full-sized, official NFL football with Dick Buck as his signature, certificate of authenticity, in a... In a presentation case and a rugby a really good rugby book arrived from Gary Reese. so can I just that say is... thank you so much to Gary Reese. you don't know how, how appreciative I am that is fantastic oh, I know it blew my mind if anyone out there is listening I like Ian Rush Garth Bale Anne Ramsey <laughs> Mark Hughes Neville Southall right Garrett, thank you for sending that You're to an Mike angel. thank you absolute legend of a man right my first clip for this week is from 1973 uh, it is Brazil playing football against a team that is nominally called uh, Shamrock Rovers. Their opponents, not a Republic of Ireland team, not a Northern Ireland team, instead a combination of the two. Stars, this is full of stars. Jennings, Martin O'Neill, Giles, Terry Conroy and the late Derek Dugan. 
This is kind of harks back to episode one when Ellis uh, chose Barry McGuigan winning the world title. I listened to episode one again like two days ago. That bit, I'm, you know, that bit when McGuigan's old man is singing Danny Boy. I was in my bedroom. I had goose pimples everywhere. It was yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Sorry, go on. It's well worth watching the whole thing of that. This one, right, is a game in 73. So to kind of put it in context, 72, you've had Bloody Sunday. You've had the Five Nations unable to finish. Yeah, Scotland and Wales haven't played. Scotland and Wales won't go there to play games in Ireland. Um, and in 73, the Northern Ireland team are playing their home games in England during the Home Nations Championship and during their World Cup qualifiers because teams won't go to Belfast yeah. to play. It was probably Europe's, if not the world's most violent city in the 70s. And yet, some guy manages to convince Brazil to play a friendly against a combined Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland team. Now, a guy called uh, Lewis Kilcoyne was in charge of the Republic of Ireland at the time. He's out in Brazil on a Republic of Ireland tour during 72, says to the president of the Brazilian FA, you're doing a tour of Europe next year, will you come and play in Dublin? And he says, no, we're kind of full, we've got this all sorted. So what if you were going to play against an all-Ireland team rather than just the Republic? And the Brazilian guys say, yeah, sure. But they managed to get Derek Dugan and Johnny Giles in the same room, so respective captains of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland... And they say, okay, well, if you can get Brazil here, we can turn out a team. And it's it's remarkable because I think you only have to go back to the 50s and both teams were still calling themselves Ireland in various tournaments. And players were turning out for both in those days until, I think, yeah, I think they played Wales in, I think Northern Ireland, in inverted commas, played Wales in a World Cup qualifier for... 58, so it would have been a Home Nations Championship game. And then FIFA cottoned on to the fact that these guys had already played for the Republic side in the past as well. And they went, right, OK, we need to work out how we do this. So the kind of delineation between the two sides becomes bigger yeah. at the end of the 50s. So this flies in the face of absolutely everything. And you've got Catholics, Protestants, all turning out for the same team. I know this happened in rugby, so it's not... You know, when I watched it back, I think it's difficult to imagine now just the sort of hold that Brazil team had over the general public because they'd won it in 62, but no no one had watched 62, really. 66, Brazil had, been, uh, had gone out in the group stages. Pele had been kicked out the tournament. 1970 was the first World Cup in colour, and they yes. were a different on a different planet to everyone else. What a side. Yeah. And there was just something about that Brazil team that all football fans of a certain age, if if you came of age in the early 70s, you would have been obsessed with that Brazil team. But they didn't play in the UK very often. Wales played them the most, probably, because we'd played them in 58 and then I played them in friendlies because there was a relationship between the FAW and the Brazilian FA. The Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland had never played Brazil before. So for them to come over to Ireland for the first time... And, and play a game of, you know, I mean, of such magnitude. It was an enormous draw because they were they were the, the football's Harlem Globetrotters. Yeah, I was, going to use that exact, I was going to use that exact analogy there. And they managed to get Lansdowne Road, which the Republic of Ireland side hadn't had 
up until this point. And it's kind of the tipping point as well where the Republic, they don't quite start to get good yet. But this is where they kind of push on from. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zipline through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. So this week on Documentary Duty, it is Mike. Uh, what are you bringing to the bar this week, Mike? Right, this is an absolutely fantastic documentary. Um I'm a big hockey fan, ice hockey fan. Not as big as I used to be when I, when I lived over in in, uh, in Canada, but I still follow it. My my brother-in-law loves it. My little nephew loves it. Uh, my my sister loves it. Um, but I found this fascinating. This and it's got a lot of uh, crossover between a lot lot of sports. This is a, a a documentary called Ice Guardians about enforcers in ice hockey. They said, you know what, you're going to play in the NHL. It might take you ten years. But you're gonna have to play every step of the way, and I said, you know what, I'll do it. It elevated to the point where it was just like, oh my god, like I was in the Rocky movie. This is a super heavyweight bout. The idea of fighting in hockey really splits people. You have these sort of two main camps, and the first one might be rough old school hockey, all about a notion of respect and honor, and the other side says, actually, we don't need this anymore. It all seems wildly entertaining until, until something, something like this happens. So what I found fascinating about so that is that in so uh, ice hockey, there, were, there was always a role, or sort of from certainly after the war until about the, the, the early 90s, I suppose, of an enforcer. So where you'd have, you'd have your, your superstar players your goal scorers, uh, and then you'd have people who wanted to take those people out of the game. And if you want to take someone in the game, the game of hockey is, you know, I mean, it's a very fast, very violent, uh, very violent sport. It can, it can be done. So, so your team would employ uh, an enforcer, basically. So somebody who always had your superstars back, and that was their job. So they would fight on your behalf. They would take people out who, who sort of pushed you around. And this is a documentary all about that and a few things stuck in my mind one is there's a fellow there called in the dock called Brian McGratton who is far too handsome a man to be playing any sort of <laughs> professional sport like a really good looking dude but, but tough as teak um, and, and I, I when I played rugby over there a lot of the boys would play hockey in the winter and then they, they play um, rugby in the summer summer season over there right certainly in the in the eastern part of Canada is it's one of the few places I've been where they absolutely would love to fight so you, you know a game of rugby and suddenly square up with a bloke, and he just say, do you, "You know, do you, you want to drop the gloves? You want to drop the gloves?" I'm like, "Well, drop the gloves. What are you talking about?" And then they would just square, just start fighting you. But it was a proper stand-up fight because that's yeah, what... put your dukes up. Oh yeah, yeah, but exactly. It's just part of the of the the whole fabric of the game of hockey. 
and it was always accepted. We've, we've talked before about accepting risk and accepting um, physical harm, you know, and, and there's a contract between yeah. between the players, an unwritten contract between the players. Hockey had that. And, and, and what I find fascinating about that um, is when players talk about the fact that modern-day players, especially your superstars that you want to build a team around, are more at risk now than they would have been 15, 20 years ago. And, that, and, and I, there's a lot of times in rugby, when I think about when we used to ruck back in the day, right, and you, you go on the floor, you would get the you would get pieces kicked out of your yeah. back and your legs and your ass and your arms and your shoulders, right? But you didn't get the sort of Sam Warburton jackal injuries when, when you're sort of bridging rucks and getting hit in the back of the neck. So there was a lot of broken bones and bloody noses and cuts and scrapes, but there weren't a lot of the really bad neck and shoulder injuries, I don't think. I mean, that's anecdotal, right? But they said in hockey the same thing. You have players like, like Gretzky... I don't think Gretzky ever had a concussion. And he's not particularly big, Wayne Gretzky. Well, he's, t- he's, he's, he's small. Even my hockey standards at the time, he's small, right? Um, when, when he first came into the league, there was a fellow called Dave Semenko who was ridiculously tough. He's in, he's in the video. He was his enforcer in Edmonton. Then when Semenko left, they brought in this Marty McSorley, who was his next enforcer. Yeah. To look, and Marty McSorley was a bloody unbelievably hard man. When Gretzky went to the Kings, one of the provisions when he went to L.A., was he took Marty McSorley as well. So they, they had to give Marty McSorley a contract. So you, you weren't just signing Gretzky. You had to sign his enforcer as well. What, what I find fascinating watching that is, as a, as a dad whose kids play sport, is there's bits where one of the, the boys is talking about his dad basically said, you, you know, if you want to play hockey, you're never going to be the quickest. You're never going to be the most skillful. You better learn to fight on skates. And that, should, that could be your route to the NHL. So he knew that his job was to, punch people on a pair of skates. The one guy who says, as soon as I've got the shirt grabbed, mm. I know it's all over because I don't even have to look anymore. I know from where my hand is, if I swing my left then, I'm definitely making contact with his yeah. face. And if you watch the official, because it was part of the game, you know, they will, they'll skate around and the official sort of will sort of, they'll watch the two of them duke it out. As soon as one goes to the floor, they'll break it up. But until yeah. that moment, they just haven't got on with it. The, th- the thing I found astonishing, and I'm probably guilty of watching this through the prism of a football fan, is that in, in, in football, we are t- they, all of the authorities are unanimously trying to reduce fighting. And, you know, the, you think of Norman Hunter and Franny Lee and... I love that scrap when they get sent off. They're <laughs> yeah. oh, so good. But all the time, it is condemned by the um, commentators and is condemned by the authorities and you get in trouble for it. What I found astonishing was that it is a recognised part of the game. Yeah. I just could I could not the com- believe The commentators it. just go, here we yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're also and talking about people, he's a southpaw, he's, he's got an orthodox... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're training as boxers. They're not even training as hockey players. No. They're doing boxers training and they're doing martial art but- training. The point they made about uh, Gretzky could, could perform because McSorley or Semenko always had his back. My sister lives in Pittsburgh, married a Pittsburgh boy. They, they, they worship Sidney Crosby, who's a fantastic yes. hockey player, right? Uh, probably the best player in the, in the league. People, a lot of people think he's the greatest player since, since Gretzky, right? But he gets concussions all the time because people know that they've got to take Sidney Crosby out of a game. So they'll send somebody on and they'll take Crosby out. They'll take their two-minute penalty or whatever, their four minutes. 
you know, and, and get on with it. But back in the day, you'd have had a Marty McSorley or a Dave Semenko there saying, if you want to go near Crosby, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put you in hospital. And that, so that didn't happen. The one guy who, I can't remember which guy it was, but the one who spends the post-season wrapping his knuckles in chains. Yeah, and punching trees. And punching trees. <laughs> yeah, isn't that great? I mean, holy shit. I know. Do some sit-ups. I didn't think. Like, no, no. I'm just going to bust my knuckles up so it doesn't hurt as much during yeah, the I season. I would have assumed that that would make your knuckles softer and weaker. Punching trees. I think trees his, his logic was... I think his logic was that if I punch your cheekbone, it's going to break my knuckles. Mm. So if I, I get I my... I think he said if I get my knuckles all gnarly now... And calloused. He wanted his hands calloused. Yeah. What's your son do? Oh, he, uh, he, he fights on ice skates for a living. Yeah. He's out the back punching the apple <laughs> tree now. Got a bike chain round his hand. <laughs> but in a way, the, again, it's sensible. You took, they told people in the, in, the, in the parking lots, in the car parks, we would say, you know, do you like watching fights? And like eight, eight, yeah. 80%, I'd say, go, yeah. Of course, that's why we can watch hockey games. But the way they talk about the noise as well, that uh, they are right that the noise at any sporting event when something exciting yeah. happens is discernibly different yeah. from the noise when there's a bundle going on, be it football, rugby, yeah. whatever yeah. it is. I've never seen one in athletics, but maybe the steeplechase goes out of the games. I mean, it must have <laughs> happened. So- Just someone trying to dunk someone in the yeah. water on the steeplechase. But two blokes with shop, two blokes with javelins fighting. <laughs> I mean, decent scrap, it? The complete acceptance of fighting in the NHL, almost structured fighting, that it was a recognised part of the game, and mm. that you're an enforce. There is an enforcer in every team, the same way that in 1970s English football, every team had a hard man. So you had it yeah. was Terry McDermott thing, yeah. for Liverpool, you had Norman Hunter for Leeds, you know, Ron Chopper Harris for Chelsea. There was always one. Great days, man. Um Yeah, and then it was then it was Graeme Souness and even even in the nineties, you know, Vieira and Roy Keane were the sort of the hard you you I wouldn't have messed with Roy Keane. I also wanted a, a we'll mess obsession with, with winning. But they were regarded as the ones who were there to look after their more talented teammates, as well as obviously Roy King could play. They could all play to the, you know. Yeah. But yeah. What, what I found amazing about it was that, and this this actually is sort of relevant to my to my next clip. But in whenever there's fighting in all of the other sports I've ever watched, and I'm a, someone who loves sport, fighting is condemned. Mm. That is universal across all sports, apart from yeah. in NHL. <laughs> Where it is seen as obviously you know boxing and actual combat sports aside, but it is it is commentated on as if it's boxing, and I just but it's, couldn't get my head around it. Well, this is the thing that I think it it's changed in I mean in the last I'm mean, not fifteen years probably that it's changed. They brought the, because they wanted to to grow this TV market. I hate the word grow as a verb, right? But they wanted to grow their markets and, and you know, and reach out a place that didn't traditionally, you know, there was no, you didn't, you didn't grow up in San Jose skating around frozen lakes as a kid, right? There, there was no hockey in, in Los Angeles. So when they sort of take these teams into, into markets that haven't got a background of hockey, right? Like you said, they yeah. play baseball or they play American football or basketball. Or, you know, so they do, they do something else. Then they must have looked at that and thought, what the bloody hell's going on here? Well, they're just punching lumps out of each other. So the NHL thought, we need to change this to appeal to, to be more of a, a, a friendly product for these people that don't understand the, the history of hockey. 
it's a bit like Aussie rules where you can't get sent off. Hmm. Well, I, 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 I did gigs in Australia about 10 years ago and, and an Australian comic took me to an Aussie rules game. And as we were walking to the ground, he was explaining the rules to me and just said, oh, and by the way, you can't get sent off. And I just, I just <laughs> could, could not get my head around. So I kept offering him hypothetical scenarios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah. and it was always, yeah, you'd get slightly for on the Monday mm. and you might get suspended, but you stay on the pitch. I always used to think it was a bit like you took someone who had a vague understanding of most sports <laughs> and told them to come up with a new sport yeah. <laughs> in five minutes with a gun pointed at their head. Just make stuff up. <laughs> so it's like, Two sets of goalposts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's the size of a cricket pitch. You, you, you can't get sent off. There's a guy dressed as a fishmonger in between the posts. <laughs> and, and you've got to touch a ball on the floor. Or, 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 bench it, or pick it up. Or, and you, you, you can't... You can't throw... You can't throw it, you can only punch it. What? Yeah, yeah you, you can punch it, but it's a rugby ball. Um, yeah. You kick it, the guy catches it, it's a mark, no one can touch him. Yeah. But they can touch him and they can't get set yeah. off. Oh, it's got to be an oval. What? Yeah, what's the how big as a pitch? Huge. <laughs> <laughs> Too big of anything. Right, this one is available on Netflix. Uh, it's called Ice Guardians. We'll stick a trailer up. Uh, on the YouTube channel on the playlist there so you can have a look at that and watch it through. Right, round two of clips. Ellis, you are first up with this one and we are back to the 70s. Awful lot to talk about in this clip. It's, uh, it's only about three and a half minutes long. Whenever commentators and pundits and journalists talk about the clip that sums up 1970s football. They often say Ronnie Radford's goal for Hereford against Newcastle United in the third round of the 1972 FA Cup. I think this is more archetypally 70s than that, even though in the Ronnie Radford clip at Edgar Street you've got all the kids running on the pitch in their NHS glasses and snorkel parkers and all of that kind of stuff. The fact the pitch is a bog and... In fact, Ronnie Radford looks about 60 and all that kind of stuff. The clip I've chosen is Jeff Astle's very dodgy goal for West Brom against Leeds United at Ellen Road in 1971. By a point that season, so it's 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 the height of Don the Don Revere when they were a really fantastic side and they seemed to be going for the title every season. They lost to West Brom, who came seventeenth that season, so they weren't a, weren't a particularly good team. Certainly, as far as the the Leeds United players are concerned, and the fact and, and as far as Don Revy was concerned, and Leeds fans in particular are concerned, this is the game that lost them the title. Now, the goal itself, I asked. The, the biggest football expert I know, Jonathan Wilson, who writes for The Guardian, I said, should it have stood? And he said, rules were slightly more open to interpretation at that e- in that era because you know far yeah. less football was televised. But by my understanding, unless it was a special directive, which I don't know about, I don't think it should have stood. And then um, a commentator for Five Live, who was a West Brom fan, chipped in and said, no, absolutely no chance. So 
in the early 70s, I think a lot of people in football went by the whole Bill Shankly thing of, well, if he's not interfering with play, what's he doing on the pitch in the first place? Mm. Now, the goal is shambles. The, the clip is only three and, a half minute long, three and a half minutes long, so you can see it for yourself. The reason I love it so much is the commentary. It is, without a doubt, my favourite piece of commentary of all time. <laughs> the way Barry Davis <laughs> says, and Leeds will go mad! And they have every right to go mad! <laughs> he's referring <laughs> to the fact that the game is still ongoing, but the referee needs protection from the police because there's been a pitch invasion. <laughs> and also, he's been surrounded by the Leeds players, who are furious. Don Revy comes on the pitch, um, holding a tartan pic- picnic blanket. I don't know why that is. <laughs> um, Leeds at the time, I think if you weren't a Leeds fan, they were generally hated by most football supporters because as, as good a side as they undoubtedly were... They had a reputation for being tough and uncompromising and hard and dirty and cynical. And you won them all by cheating. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And <laughs> what a film. So Go on. They were intimidating. <laughs> well, you know, intimidating the referee, but they, they were perfectly happy to state their case to the referee, who, in a fantastic 1970s fashion, is called Ray Tinkler. Great. Oh, come on. Great <laughs> name. No one has surnames like that anymore. No one's called Tinkler. By 1975, whenever anything happens in the stands, the commentators always say the same thing. It's always minus minority, not real fans, English disease, kick them out, all that kind of stuff. Barry Davis seems to be condoning it. Which is what I find so funny. (laughs) Now, obviously it's not funny when, you know, two minutes later the the linesman's hit by um, uh, a coin, I think, from from the Leeds end. Obviously, you know, that's not funny. It's just the fact that Barry Davis is so incensed. By Barry Davis? (laughs) (laughs) Wanker! What? (laughs) Barry Davis is so incensed on behalf of the Leeds players. And, you know, the game happened at the end of April, so the the league season is winding down. It's the business end, and it's really tight between Leeds and Arsenal. Arsenal won the double that season, of course, as well. And it's just, you know, and Leeds have... Leeds will go mad and they have every right to go mad, I think is a piece of commentary that every supporter of a certain age remembers. The other thing is... These Leeds fans will smash up the town centre and they have every right to smash up the town centre. (laughs) Now, there was a riot after the game which meant that Leeds couldn't play the first four games. They had every right to go there for that game. (laughs) They couldn't play the first four games. Um, of the following season at home at Ellen Road because of the behaviour of the supporters. It is such a 1970s pitch invasion. So one guy gets on and he's in a, he's in a mustard suit. Back in the day when you would wear a mustard suit to football. <laughs> now, the thing with football hooliganism is, is by the 90s, by the time I was going to football, it was much older men and it was... It, and. It was more. Um, there was, there was, but also there was a far more sinister edge to it when it was much older blokes. In in the seventies, if you watched the, the really famous moments of football, it is it is kids. It's sort of fifteen and sixteen year olds. But the the pitch invasion is is old men because they are furious and they think that their team has been robbed of winning a first division title and that great Leeds team as well underachieved they they only won a couple of league titles and they only won one FA Cup I think but Barry Davis says this is the Yorkshire spirit coming into play <laughs> you, think? you just can't 
cannot say this stuff. But the thing with Jeff Astle, all goal scorers are obsessed with scoring goals and they none of them really care how they go in. If you talk to any great goal scorer, they're not, but they, it's all about the numbers. And when he scores and he realises he's got away with something and he can't believe it's been given, the look of glee on his face is fantastic because he's just got this smile that's like, yes. <laughs> oh my God. I watched one of those, there was like the top 20 firms in British football thing a couple of years ago. And the number one firm I think, was the Yorkshire Police. And they said, oh, yeah. <laughs> the, reason yeah, no, yeah. the reason there's no Toronto Leeds games are not like it used to be now is they go there absolutely mob-handed, just hundreds yeah, of police, yeah, yeah. loads of horses. They don't mess about. We mm. we played Leeds in 2007 in League One, and it was horrendous up there for the whole day because Leeds is a one-club city as well, so, you know, they're obsessed with their football team up there. And the atmosphere was fantastic at the ground, but, I mean, it's it's not a place to be taken lightly, I don't think. It's a bit like Millwall in that. I've had the entire Dockers stand at the New Den uh, chanting, who's the wanker in the green? Because I was wearing a green coat. And it is quite intimidating with 3,000 people <laughs> calling you a wanker. Not, not looking around you. Not watching oh. the game, yeah. My mate Andrew... I was certainly a Millwall fan. Seeing about you, it's brilliant, it's hilarious. But, you know, there's uh, Leeds is... Um, is not for the faint-hearted, and Jeff Astle realizes what he's done, and I just, I just love it. And um, yeah, they 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 lost the title to Arsenal that season by a point. It's still that apparently, if you talk to Leeds fans of a certain age, they will still refer to him as that bastard Tinkler, um, <laughs> which which I think says it all. Sounds like a comedy character from the seventies. <laughs> that that could be the two Ronnies. <laughs> that bastard Tinkler. Right, round number two. I'm going to go next and this is a clip from 2007 uh, this is Bernard Hopkins and Joe Calzaghi oh. not the fight but this is I think the day before Ricky Hatton fought against Floyd Mayweather in Vegas and this is in the media room they were brought together to have a little conversation a little kind of confrontation to kind of build up a potential fight and it's all gone swimmingly it's all gone fine but Hopkins doesn't think it's gone quite fine enough. So he walks off and then his brain kicks in and he comes back and he just shouts this at uh, Joe Calzaghi. I would never let a white boy be me. I would never let a white boy be me. I would never let a white boy be me. I'd never let a white boy be me. You call it any statement you want. So I was reminded of this clip because another American boxer said a couple of weeks ago, I'd never let a white boy beat me. And at the time, I was covering a lot of boxing for the BBC, and I wasn't out when this actually happened, but a couple of months later, Hopkins came over to the UK to do promo for the fight. He, I think it was the Planet Hollywood in London, the restaurant there. Um, and they're doing promo for the fight, and none of the media had questioned Hopkins about this. They kind of just let it ride. I thought, okay, could make some good radio here, if nothing else, or could get set upon by one of the hardest people in the world. Let's ask him a few questions. Good man. Uh, so you had a couple of pints. I, I, I had my bravery juice in me. Uh, so was it, did you Oi, think Hopkins! <laughs> No, 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 hear me, hear me out, hear me out. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, well, did, did you not think it was a little bit racist? 
what I got was very, very good radio, but also very, very scary moment of my life where a man just shouted at me about how I couldn't possibly understand where he came from, how I probably had a university education and hadn't been... Have you been in the penitentiary? Has he been to no, Wales? I haven't. I'm a, I'm a white middle-class man from Newport. I've not been to the <laughs> I'm penitentiary. I'm the only one, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm right. the only middle-class bloke from Newport, so I've, I actually have done all right. The week of the fight... There were all these American journalists chatting with Hopkins. 10 minutes, 15 minutes of his time, that's all he's got. All the Americans get their interviews, and that's it, done. And then all the British journalists, so Steve Bunce, Gareth A. Davis, all the guys from the big papers are there. And Hopkins goes, no, no, I've done my stuff now. And then clocks myself and the cameraman who was with me in London and went, you again. I was like, oh, here we go. He went, come on in. Oh dear. And sat down next to him, oh, and he went. He went. Uh, he knocked me out. You've got you've got five minutes of my time. Oh, fair dues. Kazagi did uh, not Kazagi. Hopkins did say later that he was doing it as a way of stoking up interest in the fight. Absolutely. Um, and it was all part of the showmanship of, you know, top level boxing in Vegas. I went to that fight. I, I went over to Vegas for that fight. And the thing with Kazagi, I was obsessed with him. I was, I mean, he's one of my heroes. And it was his first time fighting in America. And also, although he'd he'd fought Eubank and beaten him at the same at the end of his career, and had, had beaten Kessler in Cardiff, which I think is one of the great nights of his I was, career. I was there and, for that way in. Yeah, and um, Jeff Lacey as well is another one. Hopkins. I was so desperate for, for desperate for him to win. In that way, in that way, I, I I often am with with Welsh sports people. I was worried that he'd bitten off more than he could chew, mm-hmm. and I remember thinking, "Oh God, you know, I'm I'm not sure if Joe from Newbridge has got what it takes if if this if it's become about you know race as well as well." And you know, he got knocked down in the first round, didn't he, Joe Kazaki? Yeah. I don't know if you remember this. He got he got knocked down in the first round. And I I was working in a cafe at the time. Like, I'd put the whole thing on credit cards. <laughs> I remember thinking, <laughs> we're going to be out here for 90 seconds. <laughs> I'm going to be owned by Appas 10. <laughs> and obviously he ended up going on to win. And if you look at things like box Rec, Hopkins is regarded as the, the seventh greatest pound-for-pound boxer of all time. You know, he was, he was a good fighter. Fighter, admittedly, he was forty-five at this point. He was past his best, but he was still a brilliant boxer. Right, let's head back to the world of rugby. Mike, what's your second clip? I love this clip. Um, this is well. This is Derek Cornell getting his first cap for Wales in March nineteen seventy-two. And you can see how keen Derek Cornell is to get onto this field. Get out the way, he says to the policeman, and listen to this roar for Cornell. One of the great moments of this international championship campaign. Derek Quinnell, a British lion, before he gets his Welsh cap, and he's waited so long. And I suppose we don't know too much about rugby at that time. Uh, there was no sort of free substitution. You had to have an injury, a doctor to certify that you were injured. Um, we talked about that game at the top of the programme. I think the, of the 30 players that started the game, Wales Scotland game, 29 finished it, and Wales brought a sub on. Um, for a prop in the first like five minutes, um, so you played the whole game. So Mervyn Davis was a superstar player. Obviously, he got injured, got kicked, I think, and was off. He was right at the end of the game. 
Now, Derek Cornell, this was the uh, the quirk here, was that he'd already been capped for the British Lions. So they'd, he'd been on the Lions tour in 71, uh, played in the third test when they, when they, they beat New Zealand, uh, and had been there or thereabouts with Wales for, you know, for for a year. But Mervyn Davis being one of the icons of the game was the starting number eight. Couldn't get in the side. Um, yeah, so this game's happened. Mervyn's had a kick in the head. He's gone to the doctors. The game's virtually over with. It's like the 79th, 80th minute, whatever it is. So he's waiting. He's got his tracksuit off and he's waiting for the doctor to give him the all clear. So Clive Rowlands, I think, had it selected as his by the change room. So they're holding him back, saying, you know. And then as soon as the doctor says, yes, he's injured, he can be replaced. He's off down the down the tunnel. But we talked about pitch invasions. The, the tunnel is full of police because they, they've they got to get the players off the pitch because there's going to be 20,000 pissheads in a minute, right? <laughs> all over the place. So he has to barge through these police, but he's in such a rush to get his first cap because if he doesn't get there before the whistle goes, he doesn't get his cap. Knocks the one copper's helmet off, runs onto the field. I think he touched the ball once and then the game was over, you know, but, it, but he's got his cap. And I just... As any, and I'm sure it's the same with with any nationality, with your favourite sport. But for a Welsh kid growing up, you know, I don't I don't do regrets, but I would have given anything to play rugby just to run up that tunnel once and play rugby for one minute for Wales. Right? It would have been like freaking field of dreams. Right? I would I would have given everything for that. So to see his fervour to get on the field, but he told a story. He was being interviewed by Scott on the radio recently, and. Um, he was telling Scott back, you can't really see it on the clip, but he knocks a copper's helmet off on the way through. He said, and that copper was used to wait after that game, <laughs> on the eve of a, of a big match, the copper would wait in the Angel Hotel, because the players would be in the Angel Hotel, for um, Derek to buy him a pint, like, by, by way of an apology. He said, but for years, <laughs> like on the eve of the game for years, the same copper would be in there waiting for his free pint. Off, off, <laughs> off Derek Cornell. But, um, <laughs> I did, we did a, I did a comedy thing uh, that Ellen and I did uh, a year or two ago, and we did a rugby special, and I, and I sort of led, in character, but led the, the choir onto the pitch. Not through the players' tunnel, but through the, t- through the, through the corner tunnel with a flag before the South Africa game. And I just thought, I thought, my God, I've got, I've got goose pimples, and I'm playing the role of somebody else, right? I'm not going to... Yeah, yeah. I'm wearing a suit. I'm with a bunch of old men in a choir, right? Derek talks about the fact that his, his wife was in the stands watching him, pregnant with Scott. So I think they gave birth to Scott in the August. This was in the March. She said to so him, said, you were there for my first cap. You know, you, you were inside your mother at the time, but you were there for my first cap. Yeah. I love that. And obviously Scott played for Wales. Craig played for Wales. Um, I think Mervyn Davis, he was saying Mervyn Davis is his, is his godfather and Barry, and Barry John's his uncle. So, I mean, you know. The whole thing seems very amateurish. In that it's a Five Nations game, yeah. which at the time this is you know there wasn't a Rugby World Cup to 1987. Yeah, it's it's the the, the highest level you can play, yeah, I suppose, yeah. apart from the, apart from the Lions touring Australia and New Zealand or South Africa. <laughs> There's too many people getting in his way. Yeah, and you think how how is this happening? Why is there no liaison block there? Why is there no one just saying to the police, "Can you move out of the way, please"? <laughs> Right, let's go book choices. Uh, who wants to go first? Hands up. Right, the book I've chosen is an absolutely brilliant, brilliant, brilliant read. It's just called Barry. It's the story of uh, Barry Sheen, written by Steve Parrish, who obviously was his teammate and one of his best friends, you know, does a lot of commentary, and a book called Nick Harris. Um, I read this about a year and a half, two years ago. I haven't read it since then, so I'm not going to blag it. But I just, I, I remember it being 
fascinating from start to finish. It, it's ostensibly about Barry, because it's written by Stephen Hughes there at that time. It's much more uh, an expose, really, of motor racing and motorcycle racing in particular uh, of that period, you know, of that sort of uh, 70s and early 80s period. And, and we've touched on this before, just just an insane, insane time to be doing that, to be doing that sport. More than 25 teammates and associates were killed uh, while we were racing. And Barry and I may have been the very best of friends, but we never discussed people being killed. It was like a taboo subject. It happened, but you didn't discuss it. It was just one person less in the paddock. And it's placing the team or somebody else would soon take the sponsorship. Right, so just that, that you had to have that sort of attitude to it. And then just turn the page. He talks about uh, how, how life was you know, with his wife in the 70s. My wife, who has since divorced me, said that racing motorcycles in that era made you a hard, horrible bastard. She was probably right, but only in certain ways. I didn't get too emotional about people dying. We were so passionate about our jobs, we wouldn't let it get to us. The invisible barrier would come up. It was a shallow existence, but everybody looks back on their youth as a period of fun. Now, I find this fascinating. I find this fascinating. We are adrenaline junkies, and nothing excited us more than scaring ourselves, both on and off the track. We like getting away with it. But I don't know if we ever actually like doing it. It's um, an interesting aspect of psychology that if you're such an adrenaline junkie that you do a thing that could plausibly, quite plausibly kill you, that you don't even enjoy. And I'll, I'll talk. I'll talk about the Dunlops in, in, in another. I mean, we do a whole program on the Dunlop family, but I mean, d- different level. But but thrilling to watch, and I love watching those old races, like the Kenny Roberts duels with Barry Sheena. Fabulous, he talks about that in there. Um, but yeah, that's a really really interesting book. The book I have chosen is a book I know that Steph has read, and I cannot speak highly enough of it. In that I think this book made me a little bit weird for a couple of months after I'd read it. The book is called Born to Run: The Hidden Tribe, The Ultra Runners, and the Greatest Race the World Has Never Seen by Christopher McDougall. It's a huge bestseller, so it's it's sold an enormous amount of copies. Um, talking about how it made me go a little bit weird, I did Fighting Talk, which I know Mike has done a lot of times, um, and I finished the book on the tube on the way in, and I went up to Gail Ems, who was on Fighting Talk that day, the badminton player, yeah. who I'd never met. She's I'd great. never met her before. I'd never <laughs> talked to her, never tweeted her. Um, and... Apparently, I don't even remember doing this. I was so... I was just absolutely knocked sideways by this book. Apparently, I walked in and Colin Murray told me, told me that I put the book down on the desk and said to Gail Ems, will you let me change your life? Brilliant. <laughs> I hadn't even said hello. An American preacher's just turned up. Well, it sounded like I was about yeah. to <laughs> talk to her about Scientology. Join the Branch Davidian. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now... Christopher McDougall, the journalist, um, he was—he uh, wasn't even a club runner. He was someone who tried to run a couple of miles a couple of times a week, and then he heard about this mysterious tribe of Mexican Indians, uh, the Taramahara, who live very quietly in the canyons, and they're apparently the best sort of long-distance runners on the planet. Now, in 1993, one of them, who was 57 at the time came first in this 100-mile race that was done in America. He was wearing a toga and sandals, having done no training at all. And he's taken on the world's top ultra-marathon runners. Um, So what they do is, him and a a few of the top ultra-marathon runners in the world, people like Scott Jurek, 
go to the canyons to to try and discover this tribe and learn their secrets. Now, they're a fascinating tribe in that their culture is all built around long distance running. So they've always they're, they're not um, a warlike people. They've always basically run away from trouble. But the the thing with them is their entire culture is built around this. They have running festivals and everyone is expected to run. So 90-year-old women will do marathons. It's just one of those things. Now, I read the book. I couldn't put it down. And he he talks to one woman who'd recently broken the world record for 100 miles. And for her uncle, ran a two-hour, 50-minute marathon in a bikini, pausing to down a beer at the 20-mile mark. <laughs> they, are, oh, they, are done. they are made of different stuff. What's, but, time, um, what's time for the pint, did you do? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's just, you know, as, as someone who's done a little bit of very, very low-level, low-quality running, I've never met a runner who hasn't read it, who then hasn't immediately, as soon as the book has finished, gone out and, 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 and gone for a job because it just does that to you. It's very, very inspiring as a book. That's a really good one, Al. Uh, the one I've gone for this week is loosely sport, I would say. It's kind of... Lionel Blair, my life in show business. <laughs> Bobby Davro, ouch. <laughs> 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 uh, it's by a guy called Tim Moore, who's kind of a travel journalist, but most of his books are cycling-related. This one is uh, The Cyclist Who Went Out in the Cold, He's gone along the old Iron Curtain route, but he's done it on a two-geared East German shopping bike with very, very small wheels. Wow. So he starts at the very top of Finland and goes right the way down the old Iron Curtain, right the way down to the south coast. On, on, on 200 calories a day. <laughs> he's struggling to find food as he goes. He eats a lot of reindeer during the first couple of chapters. In Does Finland. he really? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, oh, this every is right up my alley, this is. The, the cold gets to him early on. As it would. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> what, in Finland on a bike? And he says, uh, when Captain Oates succumbed to frostbite on that sorry runners-up trudge back from the South Pole, Harsh. he slept with his feet outside the tent. The agony as they thawed inside was literally unbearable. What a tragedy to reflect that if Oates had only been able to pull on a pair of plastic carrier bags on under his socks, he could have starved to death with everyone else 13 days later. (laughs) So keep your guesses coming for The Secret Guitarist. Uh, Leave us a five-star review and a guess uh, in the rating section of your podcast provider. Uh, Selection of this week's guesses. Uh, Shaking Stevens uh, says Rooney 99. Uh, Andy Fairweather Low uh, says Great Mate, who I presume is a Steve Wright fan. Uh, it's got to be Brian May just to piss off John Robbins, <laughs> says Pumbat 22. Uh, we've had a few of you inspired by the secret guitarist mm, mm. who've been sending us 70s and 80s sports themes. This one I make Phil Davis, who is an extremely good guitarist. Um, he's one of my wife's few friends has become my friend. Um, <laughs> you, know, you, you, sort of inher- you know you sort of inherit friends, right? When you, when you get married, you don't go study with somebody, you inherit their friends. And usually, yeah. at best, it's, it's a friendship of convenience and... If you and your missus split up, you would you would never darken their door or or, or vice versa again. Um, <laughs> Phil's actually a good bloke into his music. He sent this, which I thought it's only a little a little clip he did in his bedroom, I believe. Yeah, so Phil's a mate. Um, that is a great. 
not only is that really well played and he's done a great job on it, but yeah, it just made me think of how much whoever's in charge of music on BBC Sport in the seventies and eighties was some sort of genius. That that bit of music is called Drag Race, the by the Doug Wood Band. But just think of think of the Grand Prix music. Think of Ski Sunday. Think of the yeah. snooker. Think of rugby special. Sports night. Sports night, right? Sports night. Sports night is a fantastic thing. Absolutely all killer. That 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 drag racer is such... I, I don't usually like instrumental music, but that is a fabulous track, right? Wimbledon. Well, Wimbledon, I can't... I think Ski Sunday would be a struggle on an acoustic. Yeah. I love that. And how do they make it sound like the sport they're describing? Now it's 1969, or whenever Ski Sunday started. I wanted to feel so, like snow. So, yes, but producer no would have said to whoever it yeah. was, "Right, I want you to write a bit of music that sounds like skiing." Done. Got it. A lot of them were lifted from classic, you know, music that was already around. So I remember as a, as yeah. a kid putting Mum and Dad's Rumours album on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. First time you know that that's a real song. Yeah. Yeah, Blew yeah, yeah. my yeah. mind. Right. At Distant Pod, give us some acoustic version. Do Ski Sunday for us. Boom. I did learn uh, to play uh, Grandstand um, yesterday. We'll stick it up. Go so on then. Right. It's not, if you it's, send that over. It's not me. It's, I am not the secret guitarist, but a few people suggested me. A few people have me, you. And I, th- I want to see if I you can You are a good guitarist, though. And I, I worked it out, so I can play it. I want to see your efforts. Okay. All right, send them over. We'll stick them up on At Distant Pod. And if you guys can send us your efforts at either... Uh, the Grandstand theme or any of the other 70s or 80s themes then uh, we'll play one a week before we go quick thank you to the guys at Hampshire Hospital's radiology department they've been in touch with the show Eltel got in touch with us during the week to say hello to those guys keep it all going okay yeah I know everyone out there is having a tough old time of things you guys are on the front line doing great stuff so keep it all going yeah Uh, we'll be back with another one of these uh, this time next week thank you very much guys cheers our pleasure